The Evening Enterprise, Poughkeepsie, New York, Saturday, September 27, 1902. Dr. E. F. Butterfield of Syracuse, New York, the famous clairvoyant physician, gives his reason why his methods are better than the usual way of treating disease. The doctoring of 40 years ago shows a wonderful change in diagnosing and curing disease. Calomel and Dover's powders were the physician's sheet anchor, and bleeding was the last resort. There has been a great change for the better in ascertaining the cause and cure of any chronic disease. We have now the X-ray and all the modern electrical appliances bringing us nearer the spiritual and physical condition of the patient. Clairvoyance has become an established fact and explains a great deal that is mysterious in human life. Dr. Butterfield has established the truth of his mode and method of doctoring. His great work has been to educate people how to take care of themselves and to keep from being sick, infusing into every patient a better hope and more cheerful view of life. The moving and propelling power has kept pace with the other improvements. In the old day, we could only go six miles an hour, and now the trolley, the stagecoach for everybody, transports us 30 miles an hour. The growth even in Poughkeepsie has been wonderful in its ways and methods of doing business, and perhaps in no department of business has the change been so striking as in the newspapers. They are the molders, makers, and educators of the rich and poor alike, and give them a better understanding of the three words that are dear to every American heart, life, liberty, and equality. Dr. Butterfield has been coming to Poughkeepsie about 30 years and has convinced thousands of people by his cures of the practical results established by his reading of the causes of your disease made some marvelous cures in this vicinity. He has wonderful success in all kidney and bladder troubles, cancerous condition of stomach, disease of the liver, inflammation of ovaries, weakness of back, and any condition that is serious needs attention. The doctor has many testimonials from patients in this county. He gives all of his patients the benefit of his large experience, gives them a free examination. If you have any doubt or uncertainty in regard to the location and cause of your difficulty, call on the doctor at number 48 Cannon Street on Tuesday, September 30th. I believe there with the greatest of a daring young man on the side. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 15. One hundred years ago this month, the news arrived that author William Hope Hodgson had been killed in April. 
In the last episode, I told you about the William Hope Hodgson that most newspaper readers would have known, the manly writer of seafaring adventures. This time, I'm going to share with you the William Hope Hodgson I know, the author of The Nightland, a novel which profoundly influenced me. I closed the last episode by mentioning that Hodgson is acknowledged as a primary influence on Lovecraft, which means that the modern horror genre, among other things, would probably look a lot different if not for him. I recently started reading Hodgson's Karnacki stories for the first time, and the modern feel of the protagonist's paranormal investigations blew my mind. Since this podcast is all about context, I want to show you the cultural context within which Hodgson's ideas coalesced, and as I do that, I don't want to make it seem like he merely borrowed. I've done a lot of digging into contemporary notions of science and mysticism, and although the cultural antecedents are obvious, I can't find anything remotely resembling the abrupt creative spin Hodgson imparted to his zeitgeist. His ideas seem to have been breathtakingly, even bafflingly, original. To get a taste of what I mean, listen to this excerpt from the first Karnacki story, The Gateway of the Monster, and tell me it doesn't remind you of Ghostbusters and Hellboy. Pay particular attention to Karnacki's Mystic Circle and Electric Pentacle, because they'll be recurring themes. First, I cleared away all the ribbons across the floor. Then I carried the cat, still fastened in its basket, over toward the far wall and left it. I returned then to the center of the room and measured out a space twenty-one feet in diameter, which I swept with a broom of hyssop. About to this, I drew a circle of chalk, taking care never to step over the circle. Beyond this, I smudged, with a bunch of garlic, a broad belt right around the chalked circle, and when this was complete, I took from among my stores in the center a small jar of a certain water. I broke away the parchment and withdrew the stopper. Then, dipping my left forefinger in the little jar, I went round the circle again, making upon the floor, just within the line of chalk, the second sign of the Sama ritual, and joining each sign most carefully with the left-handed crescent. I can tell you I felt easier when this was done, and the water circle complete. Then I unpacked some more of the stuff that I had brought and placed a lighted candle in the valley of each crescent. After that I drew a pentacle, so that each of the five points of the defensive star touched the chalk circle. In the five points of the star I placed five portions of the bread, each wrapped in linen, and in the five veils, five opened jars of the water I had used to make the water circle. And now I had my first protective barrier complete. Now, anyone except you who know something of my methods of investigation might consider all this a piece of useless and foolish superstition. But you all remember the Black Veil case, in which I believe my life was saved by a very similar form of protection, whilst Aster, who sneered at it and would not come inside, died. I got the idea from the Sigsand MS, written, so far as I can make out, in the 14th century. At first, naturally, I imagined it was just an expression of the superstition of his time, and it was not until a year later that it occurred to me to test his defense, which I did, as I've just said, in that horrible black veil business. You know how that turned out. 
Later, I used it several times, and always I came through safe until that moving fur case. It was only a partial defense, therefore, and I nearly died in the pentacle. After that, I came across Professor Gardner's experiments with a medium. When they surrounded the medium with a current in vacuum, he lost his power, almost as if it cut him off from the immaterial. That made me think a lot, and that is how I came to make the electric pentacle, which is a most marvelous defense against certain manifestations. I used the shape of the defensive star for this protection because I have, personally, no doubt at all but that there is some extraordinary virtue in the old magic figure. Curious thing for a 20th century man to admit, is it not? But then, as you all know, I never did, and never will, allow myself to be blinded by the little cheap laughter. I ask questions and keep my eyes open. In this last case, I had little doubt that I had run up against a supernatural monster, and I meant to take every possible care, for the danger is abominable. I turned now to fit the electric pentacle, setting it so that each of its points and veils coincided exactly with the points and veils of the drawn pentagram upon the floor. Then I connected up the battery, and the next instant the pale blue glare from the intertwining vacuum tubes shone out. So, now that I've given you a taste of Karnacki the pioneering paranormal investigator, I'm going to back way up and give you a survey of cultural notions about electricity and mysticism during the half-century preceding Karnacki. I hope you were paying attention to that ad at the opener. If not, go back and grok the way it throws science, by way of electricity and the x-ray, into a blender with clairvoyance in an attempt to lend credibility to Dr. Butterfield's methodologies. That was from 1902, six years before Hodgson's first major supernatural novel, The House on the Borderland, was published, and ten years before his magnum opus, The Nightland. Now here's one interesting thing I discovered while researching this episode. The U.S. had a cultural fascination with electricity long before the widespread adoption of alternating current brought electricity into homes and businesses around 1890. Listen to this article from 1858 and note two things. First, that the concept of electricity as a spiritual medium is already solid enough to form the basis of a business scheme. And second, that the writer's narrative is dripping with sarcasm. So the intertwining threads of fascination and skepticism were already well established. The Buffalo Daily Courier, Thursday morning, July 15, 1858. A spiritual bourse. The readers of the Evening Post are already aware of the good worldly prospects of Mr. Hume, the medium, for whose temporal necessities the spirits seem to have had special concern. It is said that Mademoiselle Kroll, the lady whom he is to marry next Sunday, is to bring him the matter of a million besides numerous presents. After the wedding, Hume proposes to return to Paris and found a grand establishment of supernatural communication, a sort of spiritual bourse. An electric or fluid school will be connected with the concern where wealthy believers can be initiated into the grand mystery on condition of a pecuniary sacrifice proportioned to their means. The school will be divided into three classes, 
The first will be a sort of gymnasium where the pupils will be instructed in the art of bringing the fluid to their aid in physical and intellectual labor. The theory is that every person possesses a fluid which is the connection between matter and mind, but that many are ignorant of its use and existence. In the second class, the pupils will learn to direct the fluid at all times by the will. The third class is called the class of results, which will put the living in communication with the dead. While Mr. Hume is instructing the males in the art and mystery of fluids, Madame Hume will manage a female department of the same establishment. It is intimated that a company of wealthy Russians and Parisians has been formed to realize this scheme, and that negotiations are now going on for a magnificent hotel and spacious grounds. New York Evening Post, Tuesday. Another account says, Hume, the American spiritual medium, is to be married on the 19th at Paris, France, to Mademoiselle Kroll, sister-in-law of the Count Gregory Kushelev Bezborodko, gentilhomme de la Chambre, of the Emperor of Russia. She has no fortune, but will be endowed by the Count, who is said to have an income of four millions, and is never seen with less than twenty-four persons in his train. He has chateaux, lands, villages, and villas in every province of Russia, and counts armies of peasants. He has the reputation of making a benevolent and intelligent use of his money, and is said to be a liberal patron of art. He always has with him a painter, a musician, a physician, and a poet. And why should he not have a spiritual medium to complete the circle of the arts? During the second half of the 19th century, the telegraph seems to have fueled that notion of electricity as a spiritual medium. As I read this article from 1883, listen to the way people took the new science of electricity and the new fascination with spiritualism and folded them into established religious beliefs. The Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia, Tuesday, July 17, 1883. Convocation of Spirits. Exponents of free thought on the rostrum by the romantic Neshaminy. In the winding, picturesque valley of Neshaminy, where the smooth waters of a little stream course their way onward to the crest of a narrow falls, from which the locality derives its name, a queer sight met the unacquainted view of the visitor yesterday. There, under the cooling shade of a grove of beech and mulberry trees, no less than two thousand curious skeptics and heretical sinners flocked with a morbid desire to witness those strange powers of materializing the spirits of another world. There were, in addition, perhaps half that many, whose presence was accounted for in their pious and devoted belief in the existence of mediumistic powers and the strange hallucination of spirit returns. In this little body were persons of almost every grade of intellect, whose sole religious belief is that of modern spiritualism, and whose habits and mode of thought gain for them such designations as psychologists, freethinkers, Darwinian scientists, and other liberal epithets that find their origin in the broad boundaries of free thought and the higher conception of man. 
Under the title of the First Association of Spiritualists of Philadelphia, this odd assemblage congregated yesterday to open the fifth annual camp meeting at Neshaminy Falls Grove. There was every type of humanity among them, from the gray-haired patriarch to the squalling infant. There were old women, young women, strong-minded women and girls, all of whom might be severally referred to as pale-faced, rosy-faced, and sallow-faced. Some looked natural, while others delighted in assuming such a far-off mystical expression of countenance as would readily give one a horrible suspicion that they were some of the world-departed spirits called up by the strange arts of the sorcerer. An orchestra, composed of four pieces, an organist, and a choir assisted the little open-air congregation to get itself into shape for the first regular meeting in camp. Mr. Champion, who led the meeting, called the attention of the audience to the immediate opportunity of procuring a five-cent hymn book prepared for the occasion, after which the band played, a selection was sung, and a collection to defray the expenses of the camp was taken up. Then Mr. Champion dilated on the doctrine of modern spiritualism, which was founded on no dogmas but merely confined itself to teaching the fatherhood in God and the brotherhood in man. Mrs. R. Shepherd Lilly, who possesses the gift of talking by inspiration and who cultivates that talent with a liberal scope, then came forward to the rostrum and pronounced an invocation. She invoked the presence of the angels and their divine influence in directing them to receive the baptism of the Spirit. Another hymn occupied a brief interval in which Mrs. Lilly was given time to regain her composure and at the conclusion that lady again came to the front to deliver a lecture on the growth and influence of modern spiritualism as one of the fruits of the 19th century. An argument threaded the discourse, pointing out that what yet might be expected from spiritualistic faith was analogous to the advances made in the natural sciences, the mechanical achievements of a century, and the great discoveries in the arts and chemistry. In fact, the basis of the argument rested upon a parallel between the electric telegraph and spiritual magnetism, and what had come of the one in the work of enlightening the intellectual world was predicted of the other in the future work of enlightening theology. The broad Atlantic Ocean was likened to the sea of materialism, and the electric cable underlying it and linking the two worlds as one was the power of the medium to talk with spirits on the other side. The lady spoke of the future possibility of some ingenious Yankee establishing communication by an electric cable between the earth and the heavens. When the mind of the audience was amply prepared by such subtle logic to receive further manifestations of the vast wonders underlying the broad surface of the sea of materialism, Mr. Edgar W. Henderson was called upon to demonstrate the facts of spirit return by which it was intended to give proofs to the most skeptical of the genuineness of spiritual manifestations. This gentleman, upon making his obeisance to the audience, forthwith began a series of strange and unintelligible maneuvers, consisting mainly of twisting his head around, rolling his eyes slowly from side to side, contorting his countenance, giving an occasional spasmodic twitch to one of his legs, 
and winding up by allowing himself to be seized apparently with a cold chill which made him shiver like a cat under a pump. After repeating this program once or twice to the intense edification of the audience, he began to talk from the other side. There is presented to me a group of five spirits, began the medium slowly. One of them is a little girl who approaches me. I hear her say this. I am happy and am with you today as I have been during five years past. I was very young when I passed away. Now I hear the name Annie L. Beach, and again comes the word Philadelphia. I am told that she was thirteen years old when she joined the spirits. There was a lugubrious silence for some moments when someone murmured that the spirit had been recognized by her friends, and then the manifestation was pronounced good. The spirits of Annie Wood, 32 years in Spiritland, William Wayne, Alfred Baldwin, Thomas S. Greaves, and William H. Lambden were successively referred to as being present. Historic headlines will return after this message. Dr. Verdi, world-renowned electric and spiritual doctor, diagnoses diseases free cures all ailments peculiar to both sexes. Professor Golden, Prince of Palmists and Clairvoyants, gives names, reunites the separated, satisfaction guaranteed, palmistry taught, 17 Days Park. Massage, vapor and electric baths by expert lady operators, open all night, 620 Main Street, Flat 1. And we're back! That ad was from the Buffalo Evening News of Wednesday, January 23, 1901, one year before the ad for Dr. Butterfield's services that I read at the opener. Clearly, the fascination with electricity had saturated multiple markets because that second ad sounded like it was for a handjob house. Hey, nothing like a little e-stim to get a few more customers in the door, yeah? Now, let's get back to how Hodgson fits into all this. Moving forward to 1908, just five years after he started writing, we find a short article about Hodgson which mentions his spiritual side. I read this in the previous episode, but I'm going to include it here again because it's short, and because it's every bit as relevant to this episode. The Queenslander, for September 12, 1908. William Hope Hodgson, whose two books, The Boats of the Glen Carrig and The House on the Borderland, proved noteworthy on account of their strength and original imaginings, is not insensible, says the literary world, to the spiritual side of things, as is clearly indicated by his poem, Shoon of the Dead, which follows the dedication of his second book. Mr. Hodgson, though what he would describe as a writin' chap, is famous in the North for his physical strength, being able to lift a full-grown man over his head with one hand, he has, however, forsaken the North, and gone to the beautiful shore of the great Cardigan Bay, where lived Alan Rain. But except for the accident of place, the two writers are poles asunder in style and subject, Mr. Hodgson being as forceful as Alan Rain was sentimental. Okay, so that writer said that Hodgson was not insensible to the spiritual side of things, and remember that in the context of late 19th and early 20th century spiritualism, that mostly boils down to talking to the dead. 
So for reference, I'm going to read you that poem, Shoon of the Dead, two stanzas of which were published with Hodgson's novel, The House on the Borderland, in 1908. Shoon of the Dead. Hush as you pass, and hark, three taps on the glass, in the gloaming, from someone out in the dark, roaming. Hush and hark, to a step you hear pass, someone is out in the dark, hark, to the death wind go wailing, and the tap of a ghost on the glass. Hush and hark, hush and hark. Open the door and listen. Only the wind's muffled roar, and the glisten of tears round the moon, and in fancy the tread of vanishing shoon, out in the night with the dead. Hush and hark to the sorrowful cry of the wind in the dark, hush and hark without murmur or sigh, to shoon that tread the lost aeons, to the sound that bids you to die, hush and hark, hush and hark. Man, I'm going to come back to that one on Halloween. So we see a fascination with spiritualism, and the advent of affordable electric lights seems to have boosted that fascination. I'm going to read an advertisement from 1909. Note that it calls electricity nature's mystic force. The Evening Post, New York, Tuesday, August 31st, 1909. 1909. Progress. To utilize nature's forces for the economy of man's time and strength, that's progress. As Fulton applied steam to navigation, so is nature's mystic force, electricity, Man's three-armed servant. It gives the most brilliant artificial light, the power to turn the wheels of industry, and the most intense heat. Electric current will be supplied for decorative purposes during the Hudson-Fulton celebration at five cents per kilowatt hour. The New York Edison Company. Telephone worth 3000 55 Duane Street. Now we've come to what is for me the main event, the publication of The Nightland in 1912. I've held off telling you about the book because I want your first impression to come not from me, but from Hodgson's contemporaries. Let's start with a concise, straightforward, and somewhat dry review. The Sydney Morning Herald, Sydney, Saturday, September 14, 1912. The Nightland is a curious book, revealing a certain imaginative faculty on the part of William Hope Hodgson, its author. The scene is laid in the remote period of the Earth's final phase when the sun has long since ceased to provide us with light and warmth. The last inhabitants of the globe build a huge pyramid more than eight miles high as a stronghold against the powers of darkness, the evil forces which ever threaten their existence both in body and in soul. Interwoven with this is a mystical love story of reincarnation, and the whole is written in a semi-archaic and stilted diction, which ends by wearying us. Indeed, the whole book would benefit if compressed to half its compass. The author has got hold of an idea of considerable originality, but he has worked it out at such length that the reader's interest flags. Bell and Sons now, let's hear from another more florid reviewer whose bafflement was probably typical of the average reader. 
The Western Mail, Perth, Saturday, June 1, 1912. A New Pilgrim's Progress. The Nightland, by William Hope Hodgson, G. Bell and Sons, Limited, London. The Nightland, a love romance by William Hope Hodgson, contains close on 600 pages of mysticism pure and unadulterated. If the patient reader can manage to survive the first 150 pages with their frequent and irritating references to such obscure and occult things as monstruwakens, not a tribe of North American Indians, be it said, mighty pyramids, lesser redoubts, earth currents, home calls, discos, brain elements, master words, hour slips, thrilling aether, and the rest of the remarkable quasi-transcendental jargon the author indulges in, and if the semi-archaic phraseology of the whole lengthy narrative does not hopelessly pall, the patient reader, aforesaid, may find some entertainment in the surprising Baron Munchausen cum Gulliver adventures which befall the hero of the book in his perilous quest after Nani, his lost love who wanders forlorn and solitary in the mysterious night-land. Finally, if the reader perseveres to the bitter end, he will doubtless be gratified to learn that the nameless hero does, verily and indeed, bring Nani back to the security of the mighty pyramid and the paternal guardianship of the master monster Walken, despite desperate and sanguinary encounters with ghostly silent ones, horrible yellow things, ferocious night-hounds, huge and hairy humped men, enormous and malodorous slugs as big as small hills, and other dreadful nightmare monsters, all of which loathly beasts he successfully combats in his journey through the difficult and direful country of plains of blue fire, of a house of everlasting silence, of fire-holes and hills and mighty slopes and gorges and a great many more unpleasantly dangerous obstacles to safe travel, which in these glad days of Cook's universal tourist tickets would very properly be looked upon as exceedingly bad management. However, all this happened in the early morning of the world, although, by the by, an obsolete airship is mentioned. There may be some subtle and occult meaning in Mr. Hodgson's ingenious chronicle, but if this is the case, it is so carefully hidden away as to be beyond the capacity of the average intellect. Possibly, if one may hazard a guess, it seeks to extol the triumph of true love over all opposition, even including a descent into the shadowy nightland of death, and we offer this tentative suggestion for the problematic benefit of those as unskilled in such arcana as ourself. Despite its grotesque setting, the story of the nameless hero's tender love passages with the winsome Nani in the wilderness is very attractively told. Indeed, it is quite the best part of a singularly prolix and perplexing book. The hero's lament when he supposes Nani to be dead after winning safe through so many perils is one of those felicitous little touches which go far towards making the whole wide world kin. And lo, in that moment when I near to be in mine armor, I to mind sudden again that I never to have waked to discover mine own maid kissing me in my sleep. And the pain gat me in the breast so that I had surely ended then 
but that the master doctor set somewhat to my breath that eased me and gave something of a dullness unto my senses for a while. Our copy is from the London Publishers. So, first of all, that reviewer, obviously not a fan of weird fiction, was confused. The adventures of the unnamed protagonist in the Nightland didn't take place in the past, but millions of years in the future, long after the sun has died. At that time, the entirety of humanity, at least as far as anyone knows, is housed within the Last Redoubt, an eight-mile-high pyramid with defenses that protected it from the unfathomably dark and puissant forces abroad in the Nightland. Listen to this excerpt from the novel, in which the 17th century incarnation of the protagonist describes the last redoubt and its defenses. And so have I set out something of that land, and of those creatures and circumstances which beset us about, waiting until the day of doom, when our earth current should cease and leave us helpless to the watchers and the abundant terror. And there I stood, and looked forth composedly, as may one who has been born to know of such matters, and reared in the knowledge of them. And, anon, I would look upward and see the gray, metalled mountain going up measureless into the gloom of the everlasting night. And from my feet the sheer downward sweep of the grim, metal walls six full miles and more to the plain below. And one thing... I, and I fear me, many, have I missed to set out with particularness. There was, as you do know, all around the base of the pyramid, which was five and one-quarter miles every way, a great circle of light, which was set up by the earth current, and burned within a transparent tube, or had that appearance. And it bounded the pyramid for a clear mile upon every side, and burned forever, and none of the monsters had power ever to pass across, because of what we did call the air-clog that it did make, as an invisible wall of safety. And it did give out also a more subtle vibration that did affect the weak brain elements of the monsters and the lower men-brutes. And some did hold that there went from it a further vibration of a greater subtleness that gave a protecting against the evil forces. And some quality it had truly this wise, for the evil powers had no ability to cause harm to any within. Yet were there some dangers against which it might not avail, but these had no cunning to bring harm to any within the great redoubt, who had wisdom to meddle with no dreadfulness. And so were those last millions guarded until the earth current should be used to its end. And this circle is that which I have called the electric circle, though with failure to explain. But there it was called only the circle. See why I was so excited when I read Karnacki? His mystic circle and electric pentacle were clearly products of the same fascination that gave birth to the electric circle that protected the redoubt's inhabitants from the horrors of the nightland. Speaking of Karnacki, let's jump forward to 1913 and read a review of that work. But first, a word from our sponsor. Spiritual Healers J.B. and Gertrude Howe Spiritual Healers Electric, Steam, Medicated and Vapor Baths Post Office Block, Jackson Street, Batavia Bell Phone 174F5 We now return to our program. 
That ad was published in the Daily News of Batavia, New York, on August 27, 1912, right in between those two Nightland reviews. So again, this is the cultural context in which Hodgson's writing is steeped. The formula seems to have been X plus electricity equals awesomeness. Now, on to that Karnacki review. The Western Mail, Perth, Friday, May 30th, 1913. Psychical. Karnacki, The Ghost Finder, by William Hope Hodgson, G. Bell & Sons, Limited, London. A properly convincing ghost story is about as rare as a well-presented great ox egg. Recent writers who have scored anything of a success in this particular line might easily be counted on the fingers of one hand. Algernon Blackwood, in some of this earlier work, is perhaps the most notable instance of a really effective dealer in magic and spells, like John Wellington Wells. Not so very long ago, Mr. Hope Hodgson created something of a sensation with his finely imaginative essay in mysticism, The Nightland, which has been admiringly described as a tour de force. His latest book, Karnacki the Ghost Finder, is not nearly so successful. The stories, six in number, have the right atmosphere. They invariably start well, and the reader, conscious of goose flesh, is expecting great things when the inevitable letdown comes, leaving him in much the same state of shattered anticipation as the vexed condition of mind of the small boy on the 5th of November when the disappointing and funny squib incontinently fizzles out. The searcher of the end house, despite its labored climax, is perhaps as good as any of the incidents recorded. It starts very weirdly indeed, while much the same may be said of The Thing Invisible, the story of a haunted chapel, a mysterious dagger, and a highly ingenious piece of medieval mechanism. However, the book is worth perusing in an idle hour, preferably the hour before bedtime, and you, O oh reader, unhappily troubled with nerves, may perchance find that Mr. Hope Hodgson, like the fat boy in Pickwick, has succeeded in his fell design of making your flesh creep. Our copy is from the London Publishers. Now we're going to move forward a few months to October 1913, where we find a crowning jewel among the articles I dug up while researching this episode. Check it out. The New York Tribune. New York, Thursday, October 23, 1913. Spirit messages cheer W.T. Stead's daughter. Here's father's voice often when she is resting in twilight, she says in Boston. Titanic scene recounted. Telepathy exists between two in spiritual harmony on same electric circle, is her contention. By telegraph to the Tribune. Boston, October 22nd. Miss Estelle Wilson Stead, daughter of William T. Stead, the British editor and publicist, who was one of the victims of the Titanic, is spending a few days in Boston. She said today she had received many spirit messages from her father. My father, just after he passed into the unseen, communicated with me, said Miss Stead at her hotel. He told me of that awful night when he lost his life on the Titanic. As he was going down into the cabin, something struck him. It was a terrible blow. 
he never regained consciousness of this world, but passed at once into the abode of the spirits. The terrible scenes of that disaster were told to me. My father's sympathy went out to the terror-stricken who were all around him. In going down into the cabin to do someone a service, he met his end. For some time I have had communication with him. One does not want to talk so much about these things as to think them. You can't tell all that you feel is coming to you from one in the spirit world. It is a great comfort to dwell upon these messages, but not tell them. Since he has gone, he has told me to come to America. I told him that I was going. He knows that I am here in this country now. These messages come to me in several ways. Generally, it is by something akin to telepathy. I will be resting in the twilight, or I will be in a mood of intense spiritual concentration when I will hear his voice speaking to me. At the instant, it will seem as if my father spoke in the flesh. Then, as the material side of life floods back upon me, I have to wonder if I have not been dreaming. I have never received a message in dream form, however, nor have I ever used the Ouija board, but I have received communications by automatic handwriting. I believe that telepathy may often exist between two who are in spiritual harmony on the same electric circle as mother and child or two lovers. I say electric because the communication appears to be some sort of vibration, finer than the vibration of sound and not like those of the ether whereby we see light. Scientists are coming to admit that every human personality is charged with positive or negative electricity, so why should not there be electric attractions and communications? You see why I was so excited? The Titanic, spirit communication, and repeated references to electric circles. Again, this was the pseudoscientific water in which the tea of Hodgson's ideas steeped. Now, on to the other crown jewel. This fantastic article couldn't be more suited to this episode if I were to travel back in time and pay the writer, who provides a survey of supernatural literature starting with an 11th century Byzantine monk and ending with an account of Hodgson and his contemporaries. It's crammed with literary and cultural references, so to find out more about any of these names, follow the links in the show notes. The West Australasian, Perth. Saturday, October 25, 1913. The Lure of the Supernatural. The English summer book drought is over at last, and the annual autumnal deluge of heterogeneous literary matter has set in, an overwhelming cataclysm. In glancing through the publisher's lists, the reader's eye is at once attracted by the announcement that, under the aegis of Mr. William Heinemann, the outstanding biography of that unique personality, the late Mr. W.T. Stead, is issued. Mr. Stead left behind him a great deal of valuable autobiographical material, and this has been largely utilized by his daughter, Miss Estelle W. Stead, in her volume, My Father, Personal and Spiritual Reminiscences. There should, and probably will be, a considerable demand for this work. Many readers will be deeply interested in Mr. Stead's personal recollections. Not a few, we suspect, will be consumed with a devouring curiosity concerning his spiritual revelations. 
For there is no doubt at all that the lure of the supernatural, despite a widely prevalent materialism, is a potent and apparently growing factor to be reckoned with in human affairs. It is difficult to estimate, with any real hope of accuracy, the profound influence this same spirit of mysticism has exercised over the world in time past. Even today, much of our literature has about it a strong flavor of the occult. Only yesterday, as time goes, it was fully charged with the problems of those mysterious arcana which have set humanity speculating ever since mankind became endowed with the reasoning faculty. Not every writer of the thousands who have endeavored, with more or less of an air of verisimilitude, to deal with other worlds and other forms of existence than ours has been in any marked degree successful in his or her vague transcendentalism. In this respect, the astounding mendacities of the learned Jew, Josephus, and the Platonic Constantinopolitan, as Coleridge called him, Michael Sellis, may perhaps be placed on a par with the amazing inexactitudes of the ingenious Munchausen. The matter-of-fact Dr. Johnson, who, of all men, one would suppose, was the least given to flights of fancy, was gravely informative upon the subject of the supernatural. That notorious fraud, the Cock Lane Ghost, with its woodpecker-like tappings, claimed him as a believer, if not as an adherent. In conversation with the inevitable Boswell, he went even a step further by admitting that he had actually seen an apparition, although his impressions of the ghostly visitant seemed to be of the vaguest description. Sir, it was something of a shadowy being, was the burly doctor's impressionist summing up of the case. Everybody knows that as a child, light-hearted, gentle Charles Lamb suffered indescribable torments from witches and other night fears. I was dreadfully alive to nervous terrors. The night time, solitude, and the dark were my hell. The sufferings I endured in this nature would justify the expression. I never laid my head upon my pillow, I suppose, from the fourth to the seventh or eighth year of my life, so far as memory serves in things so long ago, without an assurance which realized its own prophecy of seeing some frightful specter. So he wrote in one of the best known of his essays, Coleridge, like a modern Saint Anthony, saw specters at will. His heavy, Opium-drugged slumbers were disturbed by weird flitting shapes, which afterwards flitted just as eerily through the pages of his incomparable, if fragmentary, verse. While the patriarchal, much-enduring Job, in a memorable and haunting passage, records how a spirit passed before my face, the hair of my flesh stood up. The universal Shakespeare was, of course, a past master of the supernatural, Hamlet, urged on to filial vengeance by the restless spirit of his murdered sire, Macbeth, the rude warfarer, who full oft had met and conquered in fair fight, bespattered now by the innocent blood he had shed, cringed like the veriest coward before the reproachful shade of beckoning Banquo. It will have blood. They say blood will have blood. Richard, the crook-backed king, a prey to crowding terrors on the night of Bosworth's fatal field, and Casca, 
the secret conspirator against proud imperial Caesar, saw prodigies against the capital and feared exceedingly. Coming down to comparatively recent days, Scott, for example, was not invariably successful when he essayed the supernatural. The White Lady of Avenel cuts a singularly unimpressive, albeit a ghostly, figure in what is otherwise a very effective romance. On the other hand, Wandering Willie's tale in Red Gauntlet is admittedly one of the most weirdly powerful ghost stories in the English language. Dickens' dealings with the occult are, like his sentimentalism, decidedly banal. His apparitions are the apparitions of the nursery rhyme book, as much like the real genuine article as is the shell of a turnip, shaped into the semblance of a skull by a mischievous urchin, and a lighted candle set inside it. Lytton was better. In his Strange Story, and in Night and Morning, he makes use of the supernatural with the unerring touch of a master hand. Lovers of the grisly in literature can hardly fail to recall Mrs. Crowe's Nightside of Nature and Mrs. Shelley's Frankenstein, two books not much in vogue nowadays, which, however, made a considerable sensation at the time of their first appearance, many years ago, about the middle of last century. The American poet and short story writer, Poe, owing to temperament and other contributory causes, seldom contrived to dissever himself completely from an association with the weird and uncanny. His verses and tales reek noisomely of the grave and the charnel house. He is, without doubt, grim enough, but most lamentably deficient in the saving sense of humor, lacking which attribute no writer can be justly allotted a place among the immortals. Light and shadow must be happily alternated, or the result will be either a glaring hardness of atmosphere almost intolerable or an irritating half-light in which the bewildered reader gropes and stumbles blindly to the detriment of his mental shins. Among the poets, Blake stands out preeminently as the master mystic. With Blake, as with Poe, descending the scale rather abruptly, it was the strange touch of diseased mentality, so near akin to genius that the borderland is difficult to define, combined with an imaginative faculty abnormally developed, which gave him the position he holds by right of might in the foremost rank of the poets. Rossetti had something of Blake's sudden illuminating flashes of spiritual insight, and this is perhaps even more noticeable in much of the earlier work of the leading Celtic poet of today, Mr. W.B. Yeats. The saintly John Wesley has left upon record how he once saw a ghost. And in our own generation, such accredited giants of the world of science as Sir William Crookes and Sir Oliver Lodge seem to incline, not unfavorably, as earnest inquirers after truth, to the probability, rather than the possibility, of those striking manifestations of psychic phenomena, those telepathic communications of man's subliminal consciousness that were, not so very many years ago, laughed loudly to scorn as the mere stock in trade of the impudent charlatan and the arch delusion of his too credulous following. Maurice Maeterlinck, the Belgian poet, 
In an interesting article on life after death, which appeared in a recent issue of the Century magazine, touches on this momentous question in a sympathetic, if cautious, spirit of inquiry and qualified belief. Of contemporary prose writers who have ventured a little distance into the shadowy, twilight realm of the supernatural, Kipling, in two brief intervals of imperialist, symbol-clashing fervor, scored at least one supreme success in his unforgettable short story, The Mark of the Beast, a tale best left severely alone by readers who are subject to that troublesome modern-day malady of nerves. Then there is Mr. W. Hope Hodgson, a rising star in the literary firmament, who has come meteorically to the front with his remarkably imaginative, if somewhat cryptic, book, The Nightland. His most recent effort, Karnacki the Ghost Finder, is not quite so convincing, while Mr. Maurice Hewlett, forsaking the flowery fields of medieval romance and the open country of the simple lifer, has lately rather nonplussed the discerning critic with his fascinating semi-autobiographical incursion into mysticism, delivered under the title of Love of Proserpine. Then, of course, there is that old friend of our boyhood, the late Jules Verne, some of whose captivating romances have in the light of subsequent events assumed almost the dignity of prophecy, while today his mantle, it may yet once again prove to be a prophet's mantle, has fallen on shoulders of that very ingenious writer, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Stevenson, who, when not engaged upon romance or belles lettres, was more inclined towards the homely and instructive fable than any indulgence in an orgy of occultism, was yet able to touch the rustling fringe of the uncanny in his gruesome story of Jekyll and Hyde. In Markheim, too, and not least in Thrawn Janet. Will o' the Mill is perhaps more in the nature of a fable, a very beautiful example indeed of the matured craftsman's art. Another of the most promising present-day writers, Mr. Algernon Blackwood, has given us of his best when dealing with the mysticism inherent in all nature. The centaur and Pan's garden are striking instances of the singularly effective essays in this direction by one who has, without doubt, fallen under the haunting spell of the supernatural. Now, jumping forward to 1918, we return to Hodgson's death. The Evening Post, New York, Thursday, June 27, 1918. Another English man of letters killed in the war is W. Hope Hodgson, a lieutenant in the RFA. Hodgson is known as the author of eight books, of which The Nightland is perhaps the most read. Captain Galt was published in this country only recently, an ingenious and rollicking set of yarns purporting to be told by a shrewd sea dog, commander of merchant craft, who tried to make as much money on the side as he could by smuggling, but who carried sportsmanship into his dishonesty. He never failed to give the customs officers a good chance to catch him, and he always triumphed fairly by his superior cleverness. A letter of Hodgson's is reproduced in the London sphere, and it indicates how much true feeling he carried with him as he went about his daily work. 
The article continues with Hodgson's letter published in The Sphere, which you can hear in the previous episode. Moving forward three days, we find another article about Hodgson's death, which, again, mentions the Nightland. The New York Herald, New York, Sunday, June 30th, 1918. News has just been received here of the death on the field of battle of Lieutenant W. Hope Hodgson, one of the most promising of the younger novelists of England, and the author of The Boats of the Glen Carrig, The House on the Borderland, The Nightland, and other tales better known in England than here. His commanding officer, in making known the sad news of his death, describes him as a popular officer who performed wonders of gallantry and whose loss was deeply deplored by all his comrades. The Nightland is considered the best of Lieutenant Hodgson's novels. All right, so I've shown you the cultural context for Hodgson's brilliant creative weirdness. Now I'm going to go off format for a bit because... Well, because it's my podcast, and because I want to share with you why Hodgson's masterwork means so much to me. I'm going to read you a piece that I wrote about two years ago. The Last Redoubt The Nightland, a novel by William Hope Hodgson, was published in 1912, six years before the birth of my Uncle Hugh, and that is the extent of the connection between him and the book. Part of me wishes there were a more prosaic link, because then I wouldn't have to work so hard to explain why I'm slamming the brakes on my stream of old family pictures to talk at you about some old novel. Truth is, it's necessary, both to slam on the brakes and to explain why, because this isn't a blog about charming old family pictures. This is me carrying my uncle's memory. Odd though it may seem, I've come to think that that old novel informs the way I perform that task. The Nightland, most of which is set millions of years in the future, long after the sun has died, tells of a journey to reunite two souls who were joined in the 17th century. The protagonists range across a dark landscape, busy with unfathomably weird entities, artifacts, and geological features, the least dangerous of which will only kill them. Yet of all the vividly realized features of the land, None are more memorable than the mighty construct from which the hero sets out, and to which he and his lover finally return. The Last Redoubt At the time of the journey across the Nightland, the Redoubt, a pyramid of unfathomably adamantine metal nearly eight miles high, has stood for millions of years. During that time, it has housed most, if not all, of humanity. The Millions living within the last circle of light on a dark and stricken world. Although even most fans of the Nightland find it a flawed work, few would deny that it is a great literary accomplishment. A bit of googling will give you a sense of the different reasons people have for considering it so, yet I've not heard many talk about what to me is Hodgson's greatest achievement, his portrayal of deep time. The millions have a cosmology alien to us because humanity has lived within the walls of the Great Redoubt for millions of years. Accounts of the distant ancestors who built their metal world have gone the way of all knowledge. The records accumulated in libraries shifted form as succeeding generations recast them and finally passed into legend or were lost. No one knows of the pyramid's construction with any certainty, much less of the time before, 
Events millions of years in our future took place millions of years prior to mythologized or forgotten events millions of years in their past. Hodgson's timeline is overawing, yet if I were to focus on its details I would do a miserable job of conveying his accomplishment. The Nightland isn't great because Hodgson dryly enumerated events of future past. The Nightland is great because Hodgson started with that imaginative timeline as a skeleton, and on it he layered a bizarre style and a mastery of tone. The result is an enigma, a portrait of humanity slowly drowning in unknowable depths of space and time, yet all the while casting sparks of defiance into the darkness. The sadness and joy of that vision wrench at the heart. Book lovers tend to speak in terms of how a book impacted their lives. Sometimes their claims seem overwrought, yet I doubt it's an exaggeration to say that The Nightland changed me. Before reading it, I could enjoy the tacit conceit that my base 10 numbering system equated to an understanding of deep time. After all, all I had to do was slap on some more zeros and there it was but it turns out those zeros denoted not understanding, but rather only representation. I wasn't feeling all the time that those zeros implied. I already had a sense of geologic time, which laughs at a million years, but it took Hodgson to make me see how geologic time relates to any spans with which humans commonly concern themselves. Geologic time doesn't laugh at a human lifespan. Geologic time doesn't even notice a human lifespan. It took Hodgson to make me quail at the indifference of those indefatigable years. And now, like the strangely fatuous hero of The Nightland, I pause to assert that I have told you this story to the best of my limited abilities and that you have understood me. You have the context to see how that old novel informs my telling the story of my Uncle Hugh. When I resolved to tell that story, I knew my time was short, so I set out to gather information about Hugh as quickly and thoroughly as possible. Genealogy seemed like the most sensible approach. Without making a family tree, I would almost certainly miss potential sources. Now here's the thing I didn't see coming. The sadness. Just Collating newspaper articles and obituaries and census records can hit a soul harder than one might think. It's not just the deaths that get to me. It's the implied tragedy. Here, an obituary that doesn't mention any children. There, a census record showing a five-year-old child who doesn't show up on the census taken five years later. So much pain, so much loss, and so much of it not communicated. Looking at all those bits of negative space like empty tooth sockets, I saw a constellation of pain in the hints of stories that were of a piece with the story of my uncle. I saw other fathers, I saw other fathers, other mothers, other siblings, not talking about their aching loss, just like my father didn't talk about losing his brother. I don't blame my father for not wanting to talk about it. It's a painful story, but damn it, the very reason why it needs to be told is why it didn't get told. My uncle's life and its cruel truncation, the price the world paid for losing everything he could have been, that story deserves to be told. It deserves to persist. It won't. Someday, the concrete surrounding Hugh will crumble. Someday his atoms will mingle with mine and my father's and with those of the Vichy French soldier who shot him. 
Someday we will all become mountains and blades of grass and rain and rodents and mountains again and again and again. At times we may commune in suns. And one day, a day when the conception of a day is no longer thermodynamically possible, long after even those suns have communed and died, the last wave will flatten. No information from our time will reach that moment of universal heat death because there will be no informational substrate left to communicate it. All I am and all he was will never have been. Yes, if that set of conditions is indistinguishable from a universe in which we never were, then at that time we will never have been. That's the truth. Well, the truth as far as one layman agnostic can see it. Unknowable eons from now, the flattening of that last wave will take me and him. And the damnedest thing about that? I was going to type, That last wave will take me and him under. But there will be no under. The flattening of that last wave will take us nowhere. Yeah, yeah, all right, goth boy. What do we do with that knowledge? In the words of Joss Whedon, If nothing we do in this world matters, then the only thing that matters is what we do. I couldn't agree more, and I might recast it like this. All we have is moments. From endless darkness we gleam. Drowning in the well of time we glimmer. In the face of it all we laugh and we cast off sparks and we dance. Oh, and we do one other thing. We carry that which we consider precious. We cherish it. Even those of us who believe in that far distant moment when nothing can persist, we help it to persist, and that is humanity's grand enigma. Like my father, my uncle was nothing like me. I don't know if I would have liked him. I don't know if he would have liked me. That bothers me a bit, but it also helps me see the glorious whimsy of it all. In the midst of my ardor to propagate my uncle's memory, I see that selfishness also motivates me. I'm scared to think that a scant hundred years from now, no one might remember me. And then I think of my daughter. Decades ago, when I was becoming daddy to her, there were moments when I would look at her and I would choke up, thinking to myself, little girl, ain't you got nobody better than me to take care of ya? But she didn't, so I did my best. Fucked up plenty, but she still calls me dad, so I must have done something right. I was all she had, and I'm all my uncle's got. Like it or not, I'm the vessel for his persistence. I am his last redoubt. When I wrote that piece, the connection between the Nightland and my genealogy and historical research still seemed so enigmatic that I felt a bit silly even attempting to articulate it. Now, two years later, having just read a few articles by and about Hodgson, I see the connection more clearly. The enigma seems lessened. First, consider the How the French Fight letter, which I read in the previous episode. Here's the part that leapt out at me. You shall see us at our work, as we are truly. Hodgson's French narrator has the same narrative tick as the protagonist in The Nightland, the need to express his mind and soul to another with fidelity. When I first read The Nightland, this peculiar aspect of Hodgson's narrative stood out above a crowded field of peculiarities. The narrator needed desperately to be known. Reading the letter, I wonder to what degree Hodgson paraphrased the Frenchman or front-loaded the interview. 
Did Hodgson say something along the lines of, I want my readers to see you as you truly are? That seems likely. I would be surprised if the Frenchman's statement didn't reflect some essence of Hodgson. Now consider the letter printed in the Sphere obituary, which, again, you can hear in the previous episode. Here we see that same longing. Hodgson saw the name Adolphe de Haute inscribed on a cross in a shell hole, and his response was a deep need for that French soldier's name to persist, for his story not to pass into oblivion. And again, this sentiment seems of a piece with my own need to carry my ancestor's memory. I can't bear the thought of anyone's memory not persisting, because it reminds me that my own memory will not persist. Which brings me to the crucial aspect of my sense of simpatico with Hodgson. Empathy is intrinsic to his longing. Our longing. Remember in episode 3 when I talked about George Francis Train? Among all the peculiar characters I've discovered while researching the 19th century, none are more maddening and enigmatic than Train. He was a narcissist, a fabulist, and a self-promoter of the highest order. I mention him because when I think of Hodgson's preoccupation with feats of strength and physical superiority, I think that Hodgson could have been every bit as odious as Train, or any of the lesser snake oil salesmen of his time. But he wasn't. Why? I believe the answer is that he had a generosity of spirit that afforded him the all-important capacity for empathy. Presumably, Hodgson didn't go around putting everyone around him down for not being as muscular and strong as he was. Likewise, he certainly didn't reserve his craving for soul expression for himself. He was generous. He wanted the world to know that French gun crew. He wanted the world to know Adolphe de Haute. He looked into abysses stretching behind and ahead and could not bear the thought of any soul, not just his own, disappearing into that murk. As I pondered those letters and my increased sense of closeness to Hodgson's spirit, my thoughts turned as they often do to theology. Hodgson was a Christian. I am a devout agnostic. Hodgson must have gotten some of his yearning for the expression and persistence of soul from those beliefs. Likewise, I fancy that I got my yearning for the expression and persistence of soul from my lack of beliefs. In other words, my belief that nothing of me but memories will persist after my body stops must inform my yearning. And isn't it remarkable that that yearning seems of a piece with Hodgson's? Isn't it remarkable that two souls can end up at the same destination despite having started from wildly different origins and having taken wildly different routes? And then I realized that I was making invalid assumptions. I had envisioned both Hodgson and myself as palimpsests whose ultimate appearance must arise from the visible strokes of upbringing and experience. I crave a narrative that frames my yearning as a result of my metaphysical beliefs and Hodgson's as a result of his. But that's not necessarily true. Despite my craving, maybe my yearning has nothing to do with my devout agnosticism, and maybe Hodgson's yearning had nothing to do with his Christianity. Maybe there is an ur-yearning built into us both that would quest for expression regardless of any constructs layered upon it. Maybe our souls were always going to resonate. And with all that said, I'm going to leave you with one last thought. 
if it weren't for a small kernel of people who appreciated what Hodgson wrote during his lifetime, his ideas probably would have sunk into oblivion. Hodgson's writing was pretty obscure during the decades after his death. It wasn't until around the mid-19th century that it enjoyed a resurgence. And since then, he and his literary successor, Lovecraft, have enjoyed a popularity they probably wouldn't have dreamed of during their lifetimes. So maybe we, we outliers who gravitate towards weird fiction or towards experimental art and literature in general, maybe we constitute a last redoubt of sorts, preserving ideas until popular culture is ready to receive them. So there he is, William Hope Hodgson, in his own historical context and what he means to me. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe. Next time, it's a doozy, folks. The first impeachment of a U.S. president. Until then, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he's stolen away.